0: Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Good morning, I'm Scott Morgan. I'm the senior pastor here at the church. and just wanna say thank you for being with us for worship today. And we are excited because during this Advent season, we're talking about Emmanuel, that God has come and that God is nearer than you think. And because He's nearer than you think, there's a lot of exciting things that He wants to do in your life and in my life and in our world as well. And one of the things that we want to focus on today that God did when He came that first Christmas is something that's sung about in probably one of the earliest Christmas songs that was ever written. And I'm talking about the song that the Virgin Mary sang in Luke chapter 1. So I want to invite you to turn there. I'd like us to look at it and uh, just talk a little bit about what this song is saying. Because really, it's, it's a song about the great reversal, about something that God is doing, turning everything in this world upside down. And uh, Mary has the the gumption to sing about it uh, right after she hears about her own uh, pregnancy by the power of God's Spirit to bring forth Christ into this world. So we're in Luke chapter one, starting reading in verse forty six, and this is on page eight hundred and fifty six. If you'd like to use one of the Bible books in front of you, you're welcome to do that. Luke chapter one, verse forty six. And Mary said, oh, by the way, by, sorry, 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 sorry about this. I, throw, throw a little curve here. I, I'd like to invite everybody to read this with me, okay? So let's, let's do that, all right? How about that? Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant.'" He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. This little song doesn't get a lot of airplay at Christmas time. And that's partly because it's not one of those holly jolly Christmas carols, right? It's, it's kind of dramatic, it's, it's kind of sobering, it's very challenging. In fact, it almost sounds like a political manifesto, because in many ways it is. It's full of deep theological truth about the son of God uh, being, uh, the, the baby inside Mary's womb being the son of God, God in human flesh. But even more than that, it's a statement about this son, this child being a king who's come to take everything that's wrong and set it right. He's going to bring the rulers down and lift up the downtrodden and the exploited and the poor. He's going to set everything that's broken, he's going to mend it. Everything that's, that's uh, uh, exalted against God, he's going to tear it down. And he's going to lift up those that are being oppressed and those that are being abused and those who are being poured and trodden upon. God is going to lift them up. And it's all because of this baby that Mary has conceived in her womb by the power of God. And so, in some ways, this song isn't popular because of its message. But also, a lot of us Protestants have problems with this song because, in many ways, we have a problem with Mary. Can we just be honest and say that? And what I mean is this, is that there are some Christians that lift up Mary to such a degree that they venerate her, that they almost idolize her, that they exalt her and even say that she's the co-redemptrix, meaning that she is part and parcel the process that God brings about redemption. Now it's true that she is because she's the mother of God and that she is brought about baby Jesus into this world. So yes, God did do that. But Mary didn't die for our sins. Mary didn't rise from the dead for our sins mary didn't atone in any way for our sins like her son jesus did and so it's not right to call her a co-redemptrix but we can recognize that god used this woman who is a faithful servant a loyal god-fearing word of god believing individual very heroic in every way the thing is is a lot of us protestant christians we tend to look at those that are idolizing mary or venerating her in that way and we swing the pendulum the opposite way and we just kind of ignore her. And that's wrong. We're not supposed to do that. In fact, the only time it's cool for us Protestants to bring out statues of Mary and pictures of Mary is at Christmas time. And so we have a nativity set up front and there's a little, you know, there's Mary right there in blue and uh, in front of the the baby and and we say that's okay and we do that and and Mary really only gets our attention during the Christmas season but hardly any other time during the church year and that's wrong because Mary is a godly woman, a heroic woman, someone who truly had her faith in what God was doing. She is shown in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, she is a heroic Christian who has faithfully followed the Lord, she's an example of what it means to follow Christ. And we need to balance those two extremes and stay away of ignoring her or idolizing her Stay away from those extremes and understand that Mary would want to say, I love God, I surrendered to His will, I am following Him, I want to do His will more than anything else, and I count it the greatest privilege ever that I had this opportunity to be graced by God to bring His Son into this world. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me, may it be to me, as the angel Gabriel said, I want to do His will. May God carry that out. So let's not idolize Mary, but let's not ignore her. Let's see the example that she's setting as well as we think about the Christmas season also. In this song, we see that Mary has a very clear grasp of the significance of what's going on here, of what's taking place. This is not an accidental pregnancy. This is not something that's just randomly happened. She has surrendered to the will of God for her life and she has offered herself for God to do His work through her. She's doing something that's very dangerous and for her personally, something that's very scandalous in that culture. And as she sings this song, she sees her part in this great reversal that God is bringing about in this world of taking everything that's broken and wrong and making it right, of bringing justice into our world. We as Christians need to understand that justice is a reason why Christ came. He's come to bring God's justice to this world and we need to live our lives and orient our lives according to the justice that God has declared in scripture. Now in this song, I want to say that I think there are three key pictures of this reversal that God is bringing about in our world, where everything that's wrong is made right. I think we see this reversal in Mary's own life. Then we see the reversal that she sings about that's going to take place in the world. And then just as we, as we go from here today, we need to think about how this re- reversal affects me and affects you, how it affects us as well. So we're going to be looking at it that way. The song starts out and Mary's talking about what God has done for her, the reversal that's taking place in her life. And so she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And she is somebody who is proclaiming the message of scripture she has studied the scripture she was in a home where her parents taught her the Torah and she learned the word of God she heard the psalms sung in the synagogue and in family worship she she heard this. she understands that and she recognizes that what's taking place in her life is an extension of something that God has already been doing in 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 his people Israel and it's true in her life as well She magnifies the Lord. She's making him large and declaring his greatness to her. She's rejoicing. She's begun to rejoice in what God is doing. Not that she wasn't praising him before, but she sees that something special is beginning to unfold and it starts with this conception of this baby now growing in her womb. God is doing something new and spectacular in and through her. And she explains and gives the reason why she's rejoicing and celebrating in God's power uh, that, that God is her Savior in this way. She begins to explain what she means. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name." As Mary reflects on her life, she recognizes that she needs a reversal. Things are not the way they should be. Even though she's young, uh, Jewish girls in that culture in that day and age often got married in their teenage years. Some have said that maybe Mary was only 13 or 14 years old. Can you imagine a 7th or 8th grader saying these things? Can you imagine that? And yet, that's maybe what Mary is like. She might have been a little older, maybe 15, 18. That's still pretty young, isn't it? And yet, that's what God is, is doing in and through the life of this young woman. She, his power has come upon her. She willingly consents to this and allows God to work in her this way. And she's celebrating it because God is taking something that's broken and wrong in her life and making it right. Now, what it is is this. She says... I rejoice in God my Savior. And for us to say that Mary was sinless, that would be, that would be unbiblical. Because she very clearly declares, I need, a, I need salvation. I, I need forgiveness of my sins. I need a Savior to atone for my sins. It, it's, it's wrong for us to believe in the immaculate conception. I did not say immaculate reception. And some of you that know Pittsburgh Steeler you know lore that great catch that was made in that playoff game years and years ago they called it the Immaculate Reception no this is the Immaculate Conception the Immaculate Conception is the teaching that the Virgin Mary was conceived sinless so that she then was worthy enough to bear Christ and would not pass on a sinful nature to him Mary Mary doesn't subscribe to that idea She's, she's not saying I'm sinless I need a savior I need somebody to rescue me from my sin and my brokenness, my guilt and shame that I have. I need someone to restore and bring God's justice to me. And she explains even further what she means because she unpacks it and says, look at me in my humble estate. I'm, I'm a poor peasant girl from a poor family living in a poor village, Nazareth in northern Israel, far away from all the sophistication of Jerusalem, certainly far away from all the sophistication of Alexandria or Rome or the other great cities of the empire, I'm just a little girl, an invisible person, so to speak, a nobody, In this unknown family, we don't even know who Mary's parents were. We have no idea about her heritage or genealogy. We don't know other than what's been revealed in scripture and we have no idea of these things. And yet she says, God has chosen to show his favor to me, a nobody who was invisible, just a kid. God has chosen me to do this for his glory. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. They'll they'll honor me because I've surrendered. And it's really not me they're honoring. They're going to honor what God has done through me. It's fascinating. I read this week that, this is several years ago, National Geographic, in one of its articles, declared that in their opinion, the editorial staff of that secular magazine they declared that the most influential woman in all of history was the virgin mary which i found absolutely shocking that a secular magazine would say that and they just said it's because of the influence that she's had over the church and over you know whether you're evangelical protestant roman catholic whatever you might be there was this this sense of influence throughout all the world just how different organizations were set up around her in her and through her and the most influential woman in all of history they declared to be the virgin mary now I just think that's fascinating that they did that. But that's what she's understanding, is that people are going to see that what I've allowed God to do in and through me, they're going to honor that. They're going to celebrate that in my life. Because I was a nobody. I was invisible. Nobody saw me. Nobody cared about me. And here I am. God saw me. He looked upon me. That word "looked" there in verse... 48, he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. It's the idea of to look at intently and have compassion for. To, to notice somebody that they need help. To, to notice them and see that they have a need. To, to notice them in their weakness and offer to help. To to notice that they need your care. And Mary is saying that that that's exactly what the creator of the universe has done. He noticed me. Other people didn't. They just thought I was a flighty teenager. But he saw me. And he chose me. He favored me. He graced me to be able to do this, to bring this child into the world. For he who is mighty has done these great things for me and holy is his name. Mary's saying two things about God's work in her life in that verse alone. It's very powerful. Mary has a very deep understanding, a very real relationship with God. She says, he's the mighty one. And he's exerted his power mightily in my life. I've experienced his power personally because I've had no sexual relations with any man. And yet here I am, I'm pregnant. It's no... no, No one has forced this upon me. I have not chosen this. Joseph and I have not been unfaithful and true to our our promises, to our family and our community and to God. We, We have done everything right and yet God has stepped in and interrupted all of this and poured out his power and his grace upon me. And he's done this great thing in my life that I have this great privilege of bearing this child, his son, into the world. Holy is his name. And I think Mary there is emphasizing, yes, God's sinlessness, but even more than that, that he is totally separate and above and higher than and over everything else that there is in the universe. He's in total control. And this God who is the creator and sustainer of everything that there is in the universe, the God who is in charge of every authority that there is, This God has visited me and enabled me to conceive this child in my womb. This is all the work of God. And I want to magnify and honor Him because He is working His salvation in me. Mary experienced the reversal that she's singing about and she anticipates that the world is going to experience. Here I was, a nobody downtrodden in a backwater village, and God has lifted me up and given me this privilege of honoring His name. What a great reversal has taken place in my life but that reversal that Mary is experiencing through the grace of God in her life it's a pattern a picture of the reversal that he's going to do through this child when he's born and brought into this world as he grows up and lives his life he is going to be the king that is going to reverse everything and take everything that's broken and everything that's wicked and everything that's wrong and he's going to turn it on its head and he's going to fix what's broken and he's going to vindicate all those that are oppressed and he's going to live Lift up everybody that's been squashed down. And he's going to do this and bring his justice to our world because he's a king. Notice what Mary says. He's showing his mercy to those who fear him. Everything that he's doing and exercising this justice in the world is an expression of his, of, his, of his mercy, his compassion to us in our world. And this is true from generation to generation to generation because this is what God always does is show his mercy and act justly with those that that fear him, those who reverence him and trust him and put him first. That's exactly what Mary is a model of. That's what Mary pictures and demonstrates with her life is that she's somebody who fears God and honors him and and exalts him in that way. He has shown, and, and, and something else here that's really significant, when you start reading in verse 51 and you go down through verse 55, Mary makes these statements about what God is doing through her, through the baby that's in her womb. And the thing is, is that that baby is just now developing in her womb. He hasn't even been born yet, let alone gotten out of his diapers, let alone finished his schooling, let alone started his ministry. So all of that thing, all of that work that that her son, Jesus, the Savior, is going to do, it's all still future. That he's going to act in a kingly way. And yet Mary describes all of it using the past tense. Now all you grammar geeks, you know past tense is stuff that's already taken place, right? There's a couple variations of that, but it's all stuff that's history. It's already taken place in the past. But everything that Mary's looking forward to, to what God is doing, that's all still future. It will take place. It shall take place. It's off in the future. It hasn't even occurred yet. And yet Mary keeps talking about like it's already happened. Why? Does she need to go back to school? Did she flunk English? I don't don't know. Hebrew, excuse me. No. In Mary's mind, the promises of God are as good as done. In the eyes of Mary, in her heart, as she's pondered these things and thought about what it means, what the angel said to her about this baby that was conceived in her womb, that she surrendered and allowed God to do in her, Mary is saying that what this, this child is going to grow up and do, it's as good as already done. She's so certain of it. She's so confident that this is going to take place. It's as good as done. And that's why she refers to it in the past tense. Because she has that confidence that it is as good as done. In verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he's sent away empty. All these verbs here are describing what this king is going to do when he comes, this child in Mary's womb when he grows up, how he's going to exercise his rule. You see, Mary understood this because she paid careful attention when the angel Gabriel appeared to her and announced that she was going to, that she had been favored by God, graced by God, and she was going to conceive in her womb this this baby, this Messiah. Look. Further, earlier in the chapter, find, find verse 32 and 33, chapter 1. Actually, back up in verse 31, it says, the angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. The angel is saying to Mary, Mary. He didn't ask, did you know? He didn't say that. But he just said to her, Mary, do you realize what's going on? This baby is not just a baby. This baby is the fulfillment of the prophecy that God gave to King David 900 years earlier in 2 Samuel chapter seven, that David would have a son, one of his offspring would rule on his throne forever and ever and there would be no end to his kingdom. Well, Solomon, David's son lived and died and Reroboam, his son, grandson lived and died and all the way through Israel's history, the sons of David lived and died Until we finally get to the place where the angel appears and talks to Mary and said, you're going to have the son that's going to live and never die. He's going to live and rule on that throne forever. You say, well, wait a minute, he did die. Yes, but he rose again to live forevermore. He's going to have a rule and a reign that will never cease. Mary, this is what's going on. This is what's taking place. And Mary takes that that whole concept that's described there by the angel, that he will rule over the house of Jacob, that he's going to be the son of the Most High, which is, yes, a statement of his deity, but even more than that, it's a statement of the fact that he is the divine Messiah, the divine king who has come to rule, God in human flesh ruling over us. And this king is going to rule over the house of Jacob, which is another name for Israel. And the rule of the house of Jacob, the kingdom of of Israel, is going to extend over the entire earth. So this is not just a promise for Israel, but it's a promise for all of humanity. My friends, this is a political manifesto. That the king of kings is going to come and exercise his rule and reign over the entire earth. And Mary has a part of that because she's the human being that God chose to give birth to this child to come in human flesh. And Mary ponders all of this and she says, you know, if I'm, having, if I'm going to give birth to the king and the king is going to take everything that's wrong and make it right, well, he's going to do all this kind of stuff. He's gonna pull down the haughty who think they don't need God, the haughty, the arrogant, the proud, that think they don't need other people, that think they're self-sufficient. He's gonna pull them down from their thrones. Whatever their throne is, at, at the head of the table in the boardroom, at the corporation, or the, you know, at the office at the Pentagon, or behind the desk in the Oval Office, or on the throne of the, of the, Queen, the Queen of England where she sits, or, or there in the Kremlin, whoever that authority is, he's going to pull them down from their throne. The pastor in his pulpit, the teacher in the classroom, the principal behind their desk. All authorities, all authorities, if they're haughty, if they're proud, if they're arrogant, if they're living self-sufficiently and think they don't need God and need other people, they're a target for the justice that God is talking about here, that Mary is singing about. This king will bring them down. And he unpacks what that is. And it says that he is going to exalt, not just bring down those, not just overthrow, but install, enthrone himself as true king. He's going to do that. And in the process, he's going to lift up, lift up the poor, lift up the downtrodden, lift up the weak and the oppressed. And Mary could identify with that because she was a poor peasant living in northern Israel, small little town, and Israel itself was under the thumb of Rome. And various assorted kings and princes and governors were exercising authority over these different parts of Israel's kingdom at that time. And so Caesar was the one that was oppressing the Israelites, the Jewish people. And Mary was saying this, king's going, this, this child who's the king is going to overthrow all of that. And he's going to lift up those of us that are oppressed. Those of us are, who are hurting. You know what it's going to be like, she says? He's going to use his arm. An arm in Scripture, when it's applied to God, it, that's, that's called in, in theology, that's called an anthropomorphism. Uh, There's your word of the day, anthropomorphism, which just simply means it's taking a human feature, a human characteristic, and applying it to God who's not a human being, who doesn't have arms, doesn't have eyes, doesn't have a body. And and it takes an aspect of our humanity and applies it to God and says, you know, the arm of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, and everywhere, is in every place, the mind of the Lord, God is spirit. He doesn't need any of those things. He's not limited by those things. And yet to describe himself to us, he will say, you know, my arm is outstretched to defend my people. And so when you read in Exodus and you read in the Psalms and you read where there are songs and stories and retellings of God's deliverance of the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt, the the phrase often is used of the arm of the Lord was extended and he brought down the Egyptians and he threw Pharaoh into the sea and he overturned his army in the Red Sea and he did all of this and it was the arm of the Lord outstretched to fight for and defend his people. God is a divine warrior and Mary says this child who's going to come is the king who is coming to wage war against the oppressive powers that exploit and take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable and the poor and the sick the disenfranchised of our world this king this child is coming to do that you see salvation is political it's not join the right political party it's not that it's not about winning elections It's about understanding that if I truly have a new relationship with Christ and I've been forgiven and accepted by God, then I have the privilege of being part of the the reign and the extension of His mercy and justice in this world. And I can line up with that as well. We'll talk about that in just a moment. In fact, this overturning is so extensive that He says in verse 53, He's taken the hungry and he's filled them with good things. The people that don't have enough to eat, he's gonna give the good things to them and fill them up. And and, and those who have more than enough food, guess what? The proud and mighty and haughty who think they're self-sufficient and self-secured, God's gonna take all that away from them so that now they're the new hungry. God is gonna equalize all of this and make it just. There's going to be a great reversal. In verses 54 and 55, Mary understands clearly that what God is doing is consistent with his promises to the people of Israel down through history. In other words, the promises that he made to Abraham to make his descendants a great nation, to bring about a king, a Messiah that would bless all the nations of the earth through his descendants, this is all a fulfillment of that. And this is what everyone in Israel was looking for, longing for, wanting more than anything. Mary says, God is keeping His promise to show mercy to His people, and in the process, the blessings of the Messiah coming to rule over Israel will spill out and overflow unto all the world so that his kingdom will have no end. There will be a justice and a mercy shown in every corner of this earth. And when you and I think about this, a lot of we maybe struggle because you know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a privileged white middle class man. So economically, I have a lot of privileges. I have privileges because of my way race. I have privileges because of my gender and they are part of my life. And I have to admit that and accept that. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, I'll, I'll be glad to discuss that with you later. Now I understand I had to work hard. My parents had to work hard. My grandparents worked hard to have what we have. And, and I get that. I, I agree they did work hard. But there are just certain advantages that came to me because I'm white. And there's certain advantages that come to me because I'm a man. And there are certain advantages that come to me because I live in America and I'm in the middle class. There are advantages that come to me. So because of those privileges and those advantages that I have, I'm not, not claiming them for anybody else, but because I have them, I'm often blind to those that don't have those privileges. I think everybody's got them. And the truth is, is everybody doesn't got them. They don't have them. And I think Mary is saying that whether or not you notice the invisible people around you who are disenfranchised and who are poor and who are hurting and who are broken, whether you notice a single mom who's trying to scrape her money together to feed her kids, or whether you notice that African-American couple that got kicked out of their neighborhood, or the guy that lost his job because his car broke down and he couldn't get to work on time and it's his menial labor job and he just, he lost his job because he couldn't get his car started. Whether you notice those people or see them doesn't matter because God sees them and He notices them and He sent His Son to be their King and to deliver them and this justice is coming. It's unfolding. It's here. And He wants to use us to help bring it about. Now, David Brooks is a Columnist uh, columnists for the New York Times. He's nationally syndicated, he's on television a lot talking about stuff in the news and maybe you like him, maybe you don't but I think he talks sense in a lot of ways. And, and he said something that was very fascinating. He said, unless we tame cruelty, poverty will persist. We have to tame cruelty, human cruelty or poverty will persist. See, we think that people are lazy, that's why they're poor. And we think that, well, you know, they just don't have an education. That's why they're poor. Or they're just, you know, they just make stupid choices. They waste their money. That's why they're poor. And the truth of the matter is, is so many folks in our world today are poor and disenfranchised because of human oppression, because of justice systems that don't work. Let me give you a little tiny illustration of this. If you and I were citizens in the District of Columbia, the cap, nation's capital, part of that that jurisdiction, that's where we lived. Our city government spends, the city, the city government of the District of Columbia spends $850 a year per citizen for law enforcement. Okay, $850 a year per citizen, every child to every grown-up. $850 a year to make sure that there's a police force to maintain order and justice in the community. The country of Bangladesh spends less than $1.50 per person per year on justice and and police forces. And so, cruelty is gonna be unchecked in that community, in that country. I'm not saying that there isn't cruelty in our country, but there's more likelihood that the police will rein that in. in. In our country, there is a state's attorney, a state prosecutor, to enforce the laws and enforce justice and bring justice to bear in our culture, there is one state's attorney for about every 12,000 people. But if you were to travel to South Africa and go to the country of Malawi, there's basically one state's attorney for every million and a half people. And, And all I'm trying to say is where there's not justice, there's cruelty. I'm not saying that the lack of police and and legal authorities doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be cruelty. I, I get you can't say there's a cause and effect necessarily. I know the nature of who I am. You and I know the nature of human nature. We're cruel people unless we have governmental structures helping us stay in line and do what's just. Or even better, unless we have the Spirit of God living inside of us to make us new people in Christ. I bring all this up not to bore you with statistics, not to badger anybody, not to manipulate or coerce anyone or make you have a guilt trip or me have a guilt trip. I'm just trying to say that we live in a world where there's not much justice. And because there's not much justice, there's a lot of poverty because there's a lot of cruelty in this world. Mary's son has come in order to bring about justice, to take everything that's broken and wrong and make it right, to bring about a justice and a mercy in fulfillment of the promises of God. Now, how does that affect you and I? Well, this is the, the third aspect of this reversal because Mary saw God's reversal and the grace that was extended to her as a sinner to become part of God's plan And and she had a vision of understanding the promises of God, of, of the justice that would come and the reversal that would come into this world as Jesus is elevated and lifted up as king, his rule in making everything that's wrong and turning it right. Mary had a vision for that, a vision that's revealed in scripture of the justice that would come. But what about you and I? What about us? Well, you and I long for the justice of God. We long for all the broken things, the suffering of this world to be ended, the the violence to be eradicated. We want everyone to have a, a safe place to sleep at night and food to fill their bellies and clean drinking water and an opportunity to have an education. We want everybody to be treated that way. We long for that. All of us do. We all say that kind of stuff. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me, we sing, right? And there won't be any kind of peace until there's justice and mercy shown. I think something that we hear as we sing this song, as we read between the lines and look below the surface is the fact that justice has to start inside of me and inside of you. We need to experience God's justice in our lives. We need to experience God's mercy in our lives. And as that justice and mercy begins working inside of us, then we can become people that truly are able to show God's mercy and bring God's justice where there's injustice in this world. We will care about the people that don't have food to eat and we will do something about it. And we will care about those that don't have a chance to really get a decent education and we'll volunteer and help any way we can so that kids can learn and do that. We'll take what Leslie said a little while ago and do something about Ruth's Harvest and help those 140 kids in Littlestown School District that don't have food over the weekend and do something about that. Maybe it's volunteering at the school, bringing coats to school, helping kids read, whatever it might be that we would get involved when God's justice begins working in us. It started with Mary recognizing that she needed a savior. You know, the angel appears, God's going to do this. And Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. I surrender to you. I don't understand how all this is taking place, but I surrender to you god let it be to me as you've commanded and she surrendered you and i look at mary and can see that we're called to surrender to the will of god whatever he's leading us to do to serve however we can give ourselves to bringing his justice and mercy in a broken world. How we can be part of that great reversal of actually tearing down the things that are wicked in our community and lifting up the things that are righteous, holy, and good. As we tear down the poverty and tear down the, the sickness and illness and disenfranchise, and we lift up the poor and we help everyone, we do that. As we do that and take responsibility for that, we're, we're, we're helping advance his kingdom in this world. And some of you are thinking, I can't, it's only two weeks till Christmas. How in the world will I be able to do anything like that? I got too much going on. And you know what, Christmas will come and go, and it'll be the new year and we're too busy then. And January will come and it's too busy. And by April it's too busy, I got taxes to do. And then, it'll be your, and then it'll be your birthday, and then it'll be this, and then it'll be that, and there'll be always be a thousand reasons why we can't do any of this. And I just am not trying to, and I don't think Mary's trying to heap guilt upon us and say, what's wrong with you? Why don't you do something? I think instead, what she's saying is, you know, the only reason I can do this is because God's outstretched His arm to fight against His enemies. It's God who outstretched His arm to lift up the poor and the invisible like me. He saw me and had compassion on me. It's God who stretched out his arm to tear down the proud and the haughty and the arrogant and to lift up the poor and the broken and disenfranchised. It's God who did it. God stretched out his arm to do that. But something Mary didn't quite know that you and I, having the benefit of hindsight, do know is that the greatest way God stretched out his arm was when he stretched it out on the cross, when Jesus did that and he stretched out his arms for us, and he died for us there. Yes, it says he stretched out his arm and showed his power, but it was on that cross that Jesus was declaring the power of God to overcome our greatest enemies, to tear down the devil, the liar, the most arrogant, haughty individual in the entire universe. You thought you were proud, the devil's even worse. On that cross, Jesus Christ tore down the devil On the cross, he tears down that old proud enemy of ours, death. And on that cross, Jesus died that we might live. He destroyed death through his death. And on that cross, Jesus took my pride, my haughtiness, my arrogance, and yours, You know, that self-sufficiency, that thing that says, you know, we would never say it out loud, but we say, I got this. I don't need to pray. I got this. I can handle it myself. I got this. I can solve these problems myself. I don't need to humble myself. I don't need to admit my sin. I don't need to admit my guilt. Who wants to know about my guilt? I can't let anybody know about that. Jesus died for all that proud sin that we all have. That if we're honest, we'd admit it's there. He stretched out his arms to take care of that enemy too. So now we can be forgiven and accepted by God and reconciled to him. We can have his peace. We can experience his mercy. We can experience his justice. We deserved his wrath and judgment. But Jesus suffered that judgment for us when he stretched out his arms on the cross that we might be forgiven and accepted by God and made his children. And so, as he hung and bled and died on that cross, he was showing us the mercy of God by taking the justice that we deserved. Because of that, because Jesus did that, because he stretched out his arms for us, now we can be reconciled to God and we can become agents of his mercy. And his grace we can do something about the injustice in our world if you sense that you're a person of privilege maybe it's saying God help me use the resources and opportunities and education and advantages that I have received I didn't earn any of these things it's a gift from you help me use this to bless and help and serve others show me open my eyes let them not be invisible to me anymore. Help me see them, that I might help lift them up. Maybe it's providing for backpacks for Ruth's Harbor. Maybe it's volunteering at New Hope Ministries. Maybe it's volunteering at the Tender Care Pregnancy Center. Maybe it's just looking out for the people in your neighborhood, volunteering at your child's school, your grandkids' school, and helping, helping, just outstretching your arms to help. Maybe it's just just being available to listen and pray. Maybe it's reaching in and pulling out your wallet and giving. But it's being available to help and serve because Christ has stretched out his arms for you to save you. If God is your savior, like Mary said, then certainly we rejoice in the salvation and the justice and the mercy that he's bringing to all people. We can be agents of that because of the grace and mercy and salvation that we have received. God came here to take everything that's wrong and broken and make it right. Jesus has come to bring his justice. And because of that, you and I can truly have a Merry Christmas in the rest of the world as well. So let's pray together. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would help us this day to see that Christ has come as King. And he has come, yes, to die for our sins, yes, to humble himself and serve us that way. But he did that so that we might be spared your judgment and might receive your mercy. And now, Lord, I pray that you would help us to truly, truly be agents of your justice, your mercy in this world. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that this is not some sort of political uh, activity that we're engaged in. It's something bigger than that. It's, It's about being available to love our neighbors, to even love our enemies, and to represent you and your grace to them. So Lord, here we are. Help us each say, like Mary said, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, for your honor and for your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.